Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, two of the 20th century's best-known sculptors on view in New York City. First up, Giacometti at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. My guest is co-curator Megan Fontanella. She worked with Catherine Grenier on the show. Giacometti includes nearly 200 sculptures, paintings, and drawings. It's on view at the Guggenheim through September 8th. Then I'll talk to Paulina Paboha about Constantine Brancusi's sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. But first, Megan Fontanella, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2018, the fourth edition of its biennial featuring artists working throughout greater Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curators Ann Elgood and Aaron Cristobal, Made in L.A. 2018 fills the entire museum and features the work of 33 artists. Through drawings, paintings, sculpture, textiles, performance, video, photography, and installations, many newly commissioned expressly for the biennial, these artists exemplify the diverse and creative landscape of Los Angeles today. Find details and a full summer of related programs at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2018 is on view now through September 2nd at the Hammer Museum. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Joris Larman Lab, Design in the Digital Age, an in-depth look at the innovative work of acclaimed Dutch designer Joris Larman. From furniture generated by algorithms to designs brought to life by robots, this exhibition showcases Larman's furniture, design experiments, drawings, videos, renderings, 3D printing innovations, and much more. On view through September 16th. Visit mfah.org slash Larman, L-A-A-R-M-A-N, for more. And we're back. Megan Fontanella, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No one ever needs a reason to do a Giacometti show. He's great. They're great. Boom. There you go. But is there anything about the present moment in Giacometti that either motivated you or that you think makes now a good time to be looking at and thinking about Giacometti's work? Well, I think for the Guggenheim, this was a really interesting opportunity for us to collaborate. So the exhibition does draw quite heavily from the collection of the foundation, the Foundation Giacometti in Paris. And so for us to be able to bring a great number of works that have really never been seen in this country and have a few surprises for our audiences was was really an opportunity not to be missed. You know, he is an artist, undoubtedly, that people are more familiar with. And I do like to have surprises in any exhibition. And I think there's some, you know, those iconic works are there, but there's also some hidden gems that the exhibition kind of brings to the fore. As I was going through the catalog and as I was thinking about Giacometti before we talked, I found myself thinking of kind of the World War II and post-war Giacometti's and those sculptures of figures. And and I thought about the refugee crisis of, of the present day. Is that an association that you expect visitors to make, think about? Do you think there's a a moment of historical synchronicity there? The time that we're living in and now in general, I think one can find some correlations with Giacometti's moment, that post-war moment, where there was this real acute sensitivity to the anxieties of the time. This idea that life is precious, life is vulnerable, 
So, you know, we plan an exhibition years out, not knowing where time is going to take us. And I think if visitors do come to the material and see something in there, like the refugee crisis, like the political moment or what have you, then we've done our job in a way because we've taken historical material and we've brought it forward into the 21st century. We've made it feel relatable and fresh and new. And that's all one can ever hope for. Let's go back to the start of Giacometti's career when he starts out looking at cycladic art and cubism and makes work that, in the case of cycladic art, certainly follows after them. In the case of cubism is more kind of informed by so those are two pretty divergent things to be looking at, especially at the same time. Do you think that he found a commonality between them that interested him, or was it more kind of here two opposites? Let's see what I can do here. I think at that moment, so in the 20s and, and early 30s, Giacometti, he comes to Paris, of course, the center of avant-garde, and he's he's thirsty, you know, he's looking all around him and taking up so many different forms. So, yes, it's that interwar, the continuation of cubism. And as you say, he's he's looking at other cultures. He's looking at African art and oceanic art and cycladic art. And he is trying his hand at any number of things. And it's actually quite an exciting time in his production. You know, he hasn't really found his voice as an artist. He came from a family of artists. So, you know, he, he had from quite a young age taken up this creative impulse. But he's he's trying his hand at various things. And there are connections there. I mean, you mentioned cubism and cycladic art in particular. I mean, Artists like Picasso, you know, one of the great forerunners of Cubism, was himself looking at other art forms, was himself finding masks in the local flea markets and visiting the Trocadero Museum in Paris and, and all these artists who were who were subscribing to any number of journals that had, you know, major excavations in them. Yes, I do see those parallels in the forms, even in his style. You know, his style in the 20s and 30s is is this smoother form, um, very simplified. His his forms are very simplified. It's very different from his post-war production. Yeah, it's a really interesting moment. The two cycladic recalling works in the show are Spoon Woman of 27 and Woman Flat 5 or V. I assume that's a 5. Mm-hmm, yeah from from the very end of the, of the 1920s i found myself looking at and thinking about cubist composition 2 quite a bit it's a plaster sculpture from 1927 it's not really cubist <laughs> so why 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 do you think he called this one cubist composition or or is there a cubism here that i'm not accessing <laughs> Well, I think he's breaking things down in the same way that the Cubists, you know, were interested in taking more recognizable material, you know, be it a figure or a landscape or still life and and breaking things down into those facets and fractured forms and really investigating space. For Giacometti, space, perspective, all these ideas that really are at the heart of, of art making would 
persist. I mean, they would be something he really investigated throughout his career. And so in these early works, yes, where he calls them cubist composition, or he's, you know, kind of experimenting with the figure in a different way. There is something of that, you know, morphology, if you will, there where he's he's taking this more recognizable form and distorting it. And yes, he, he gave them the titles. So they are our, our entry point into what he was thinking of at the time. So he was undoubtedly looking to that really older generation, Picasso, Brancusi, Henri Laurence, Lipschitz, all these artists that he was encountering in Paris. So two things about that are particularly interesting to me. Giacometti is making a work like Cubist Composition in around 27 or so which, you know, is 15 years after, you know, so half a generation on from, from the dawn of, of Cubism. And all of the sculptors, with, with the exception of, of, of Brancusi, who, who plays on, on, on the line, you know, adhere to representation and, and stop mostly before they get to abstraction, as, as Cubism itself really did. But in Cubist composition, too, I think, unless you, you know, feel free to disagree, that we really see... Giacometti embracing non-object, non-objectivity, non-representation. Yes. And in fact, at the same moment, he's giving works that seem abstract, you know, seem, you know, very reduced in their form. He's giving them titles like woman, gazing head that kind of give you that cue that there's still something representational there. But as you say, cubist composition, it's yes, it's getting to the point of that, that kind of dance with abstraction, if you will. Uh, but he never quite takes the plunge because he, he kind of comes back around these objects, you know, objects you might encounter on a table in his surrealist period in the early 30s. And then he comes right back to representation to the figure. So he never quite, you know, jumps off the cliff into abstraction. Well, speaking of surrealism in the 1930s, this is when uh, Giacometti finds and indeed is welcomed into the surrealist circle. Art historians usually tell the story of the Surrealists and their adherents, particularly, particularly when we're talking about André Breton, in terms of meetings and personal relationships, which is fine, of course, and, and, and matters, and that's in Catherine Grenier's essay in the catalog if listeners want to catch up on it. But from an ideas point of view, in terms of sculpture and form, what did Surrealism offer Giacometti that was attractive to a sculptor who'd, who'd been kind of where he had been in the last decade in these cycladic and African and Cubist motifs or, or, or areas. So it is this, this encounter in 1930, uh, around 1930, when Giacometti shows a work called Suspended Ball that the leader of the Surrealist group, André Breton, invites him to join the group. And it was a really critical turning point in his career because it was really the only moment that he would be associated with with a movement or an ism, if you will. And the Surrealists were very much engaged with dream imagery, uh, with kind of mining the unconscious. And for Giacometti at that kind of juncture in his career, he he was very much interested in mortality uh, you know, again, something that would persist in his career, though taking different forms. Um, but he was interested in in life. You know, he was aware of dying as well as living and and a certain eroticism in his work, this tension that various pieces introduce at that moment. So it it was this happy moment, you know, where things 
aligned such that he he did find this commonality with other artists who were investigating similar things. But as I said, it's really the only time in his career that we have this encounter because through the rest of his career, he's kind of on his own, producing his own very distinct style, but also not, you know, really associating so much with with other artist groups. He's an artist that you might say was actually quite lonely in his own time because in the post-war period, so many artists are taking up abstraction. So this this moment where he's associated with the surrealist is is quite pivotal. One of the things that sure looks like surrealism did for Giacometti was enable him to tap into or, you know, maybe give him an excuse to explore and translate his psychosexual subconscious into form. The objects speak for themselves, of course. I mean, they're pretty, you know, it's pretty easy to read them that way. How much do we know in terms of textual or spoken record in terms of how and what Giacometti found in surrealism? I would say that this idea of kind of tapping into his his dreams, his kind of inner thoughts was very much wrought out in the works from this moment. And he himself, you know, would describe certain works such as the Palace at 4 a.m., for which we're showing a painting where he, you know, was describing these these images or dreams or thoughts that he had that were played out in that work. And then he gives them these very evocative titles flower in danger and point to the eye, disagreeable object. This is very much playing with what the surrealists were exploring. At this moment, those artists who were associated with surrealism, objects that are both appealing and menacing at the same time. And a lot of his work carries out this tension that was first seen in suspended ball so that you have forms that are nearly touching but but not as in point to the eye where you have this eye that's about to be penetrated but isn't and as i say there's objects that are both vulnerable and menacing at the same time which is quite interesting you know how he's working through those ideas you know you mentioned two sculptures i wanted to talk about one point to the eye another suspended ball both have moves that Giacometti originates in this period, suspended ball and kind of a steel box where something is, you know, suspended. And in point to the eye, this kind of horizontal playing field type creation of space on which something else sits or something else happens or something else is is placed. With with with, with suspended ball we see this hanging thing come back in in the nose in 1949 uh, with with that kind of playing field creation of horizontal space we see that come back a lot in the figurative work that comes later what about those two i don't know i don't i don't know what to call them other than moves interests giacometti and why does he return to them well so you kind of hit the nail on the head there were these forms these these aspects of his work in this period in the early 1930s that would become critical for his future products so that, you know, 10, 20 years later, he's returning to the idea of the cage, 
Um, so what we saw in suspended ball, this way of, of framing space, of kind of creating this architectural box around the objects. And as you say, with the same um, suspended form, but even the cage in general appears again and again in the post-World War II period in paintings and drawings and other sculptures. There's literally work in the show called The Cage, but it's in any number of, of things. And it's it's boxing in his figures. It's framing them. It's articulating the space in which they live. And then also this idea of, of a base or a pedestal as one who, you know, is very much also a painter and a draftsman, but is perhaps more well-known for his sculpture, he's very deliberate in how he's presenting his sculptures. And the idea of the base or this kind of surrealist tableau that he creates, it's interesting to trace how that evolves throughout his career. And so that whether it's a number of objects, you know, situated on some kind of slab or base, or in in the case of point to the eye, you know, his his both the the rod on which the point pivots and this this small figure, if you will, with a splayed rib cage on which that it, it's creating this kind of playing field or game board. And it, it evolves into a number of different things. You know, at times it's a wheeled chariot that his figures are sitting on. At times it's kind of a, a chunky base, more evocative of Egyptian art, but it's very deliberate. You know, when I look at the Giacometti's from which something hangs, which is an awful phrase I immediately regret, one of the things I think about is, is you know, say still life painting from the 17th or 18th century in Spain or, or Northern Europe, you know, Juan Sanchez Cotan or something. And he's both implying space and, and flattening it out in those paintings. Other, other still life painters from Northern Europe are happier to have that implied space. Do we think or know that Giacometti was looking at European painting and thinking of, of hanging things? So that's an interesting question. I mean, he was deeply, deeply interested in traditional painting, you know, going back to the Renaissance, these ideas of perspective are not new, you know, they had been explored over many centuries. But this idea of the suspension, uh, the, the suspended ball or the suspended nose, it's, it's interesting to, to kind of connect it back to that history. I will say for me, it could because you mentioned still life painting, you know, that, that idea of exploring mortality vis-a-vis -vis the traditional still life is an interesting connection to Giacometti's work. Also, the kind of tensions that are introduced in that work, you know, where you might have a knife hanging off of a table that you as a visitor, you know, almost feel as if you could just pick right up off that table and enter the picture plane. His work, it continues to have explore this idea of attention. And for me, that suspended ball, that suspended nose 20 years later, you know, has that precariousness there and has that kind of, you almost want to reach out, though you shouldn't. But uh, it, it's interesting in which he, the ways in which he's always kind of having a dialogue with the past, but at the same time, being so aware of his present and so adept at kind of capturing the mood of his present. In 1932, Giacometti makes two sculptures of women that couldn't be more different. One is of an elongated figure called Walking Woman One, and another is called 
woman with her throat cut, and it's the opposite of the elongated grace that we see in Walking Woman 1. How might we, how do you think about and reconcile the this kind of near simultaneity, how different these these two roughly, you know, simultaneous works are? Well, Giacometti is, of course, continuing to experiment and develop his own personal style. And this is really, you know, on the verge of yet another turning point for him, um, because by 1935, he would break with the Surrealist group and really return to the live model. Woman Walking, that headless woman, is part of this kind of return to the figure. He's kind of working his way up to the full figure so that by the time you get to hands holding the void, we now have the the first kind of full female form. And then as you say, woman with her throat cut is is a, a female figure of an entirely different sort. And that is this kind of menacing, again, both menacing and vulnerable form that you encounter on the floor. I mean, it, it's so incredibly different from the tall, elongated woman walking. You know, it's almost if you if you hadn't read the title, Woman with Her Throat Cut, you almost wouldn't even know what to make of it. It almost seems, you know, insect-like in a way. And I think that's really him, you know, thinking about the figure, thinking about the different forms figures take, again, constantly looking around him, looking at other cultures, looking, you know, the the, the representation of the figures as as old as uh, humankind. And so he he's experimenting still, I think. But the exploration of the figure across humankind is rarely as violent, flayed, spread open, I mean, you know, women with her throat, woman with her throat cut is certainly among the most violent works of the 20th century. And I, I just can't get over how he's doing that, a work that is, you know, frankly, kind of a disturbing thing to look at, even, you know, even as one can't look away because one is trying to visually solve what's going on there. But it's also really clear what's going on there. I, I just it, it just seems almost incongruous or in, yeah incongruous that he's doing those two things hyper elegant hyper violent at the same time yes i i know what you mean and it's it's interesting because both of the works were you know among his most well-known works in his own in his own time and now both works were collected by peggy guggenheim who was one of his earliest patrons and showed his work both both pieces one with her throat cut and woman walking at her art of the century museum gallery in new york in the early 40s and so they were objects that were created at the same time existing at the same time it, Audiences were who were just familiarizing themselves with his work in the 30s and 40s were encountering them at the same time. But I think that's, you know, the product of, you know, that night you had this vision or that was the impulse to make art that day was this form as opposed to another form and kind of speaking to this moment with which he's associated with this realist and really giving into this idea of the unconscious of, you know, responding to his dream imagery. Um, Before we get to the hyper-famous figurative works, there's one other sculpture I want to bring up, Cube from 1934. It's not a cube. 
he's playing a word game and and a visual game here is 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 this kind of i don't want to say a wave goodbye at surrealism and it's it's the, the pleasure surrealism takes in word games which it kind of you know got from dada but but what is he doing with cube of 1934 and why is he calling it cube so it's really a fantastic piece cube because as you say you know it's not it's a polyhedron and it even in fact has a self-portrait of the artist sketched kind of inscribed into the top of one of the facets so there's this you know little inside joke there this little nod that you you almost miss when you pass by it the object but it uh it's i love that work because it's it feels so strange and out of place and you know, we're coming off of surrealism and we're moving on his return to the live model and these figures and these head studies he starts to do. And I've always, I have always personally kind of encountered Cube as almost the beginning of that head study, that investigation of the skull of the human form. That's how I kind of approach it. And particularly when you see this kind of self-portrait scrawled into it. But also, as you say, you know, he's he's moving away from his kind of dalliances with, with cubism, with more fractured surfaces, with modernism, and kind of moving into his own modernism. And he does do a, a number of drawings of etchings where you see this form also present which is also interesting. So it's it's not necessarily a one-off, but that said, in terms of sculpture, it certainly is a very unique, distinct object. But it's critical. I think it's kind of critical to have it inserted into that trajectory because every artist has, you know, departures from what you you where you think he's going. You know, again, that's one of the the wonderful things about a, a full career survey is that you have these surprises along the way. When you talk about the 1934 cube that way, it makes the mid to late 1930s pivot to the human head, as you mentioned, and then to the torso and the figure in the works to come in the early 40s, a lot less abrupt. Of course, Giacometti's most famous work is the sculptures and also the paintings of these elongated, skinny, stretched, uh, mostly human forms. There's a dog. How and why do you think Giacometti came to stretch and skinify, if you will, form as he did? Was it linear or was it full of stops and starts? Well, so Giacometti himself, you know, says that he, in this post-war period, this um, period of, you know, great production for him, that he comes to this full figure form, largely women, but also men, and he just gets taller and taller and longer and more, you know, emaciated, if you will, such that flesh is almost just stripped away from the figure. And I don't know if it's, you know, some of the vestiges of his uh, surrealist unconscious, but he, it's not always deliberate at first, I'd like to suggest, you know, it's kind of something that just happens, this process of reworking and, and paring things down and whittling them down. But it, it does speak to his moment. I mean, these elongated figures, these almost fleshless figures, they, they do speak to this vulnerable period of this post-war period, you know, heading into the Cold War era, uh, when life is not so certain. And it speaks to his interest in the human condition, most certainly. It's impossible to forget there were enormous food shortages in Europe in the years after World War II. 
And it's hard not to think of those and see that experience in these forms. I'm hardly the first person to have noticed that, of course, but it's it's there. You know, one way of talking about the relationship between uh, the paintings and the sculptures might be a, a sort of pairing you have in the catalog and in the show. Uh, there's a 1950 bronze called Seated Woman from the Hirshhorn and a 1949 painting called Seated Man from I Forget Where. What is the relationship we might see between these two works and what might it tell us about how Giacometti worked on forms in the two media? So I, I absolutely see Giacometti's you know, work in paint and sculpture in um, his work on paper going hand in hand. And there's a lot of you know, really wonderful connections between the works. And so, yes, there's the example from the Hirshhorn of the Seated Woman, kind of spindly, elongated, again, her legs are almost like daddy long legs, seated woman. And then uh, the seated man who is most likely Diego, uh, his younger brother, Diego, who had joined him in Paris um, in the 20s and became a studio assistant. And it was really kind of critical to his production. And and you can almost conjure those those sittings in the studio. You know, it was a very intimate space that Giacometti acquired in Paris in 1926 and really never intended to stay only a short while. It was, um, besides being incredibly small, it lacked in basic amenities for a time. Nonetheless, he would stay there until his death in 1966. And when I see works like this, these seated figures or his paintings where the figure is in general, besides the seated man from the Tate, where the figure man or woman is really present. I mean, we are as a visitor almost looking, I mean, we are, we're looking them in the eye and we are almost there sitting knee to knee. You can imagine Alberto Giacometti in his studio in Paris, you know, hour after hour, day after day, rendering his family, his friends, and, and the output are these paintings and sculptures that, as I said to me, go very hand in hand. And even when you see photographs of, of the studio or, or of him at work, you know, he's moving quite fluidly. There's a, there's a canvas on an easel and then inches away is a sculpture he's working on. And so, you know, he's, he's working on everything at once and, and playing out, you know, these ideas of space his deep investigations of the figure in both forms and his production, the post-war period is very much focusing on the person, what it means to be human, eventually focusing on the face so that the studio almost seems to fade away. And then the eyes, you know, that gaze. Giacometti makes lots of sculptures of individual figures, often, most often standing in, in space and boom, that's the sculpture. But he also makes lots of sculptures where he creates that planar space, P-L-A-N-E-R space we, we, we talked about earlier, and includes groups of figures on, on, on a plane-like plinth. I, I think the, 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 the sculptures of, of individuals are more famous, but I think in some ways the sculptures of many figures in a space are, are more interesting because you have all these suggestions of movement and, and relationships between the figures. Do, do they come from the same place or are they even more different than they are in terms of form? Is he thinking through the figures of the, the sculptures of individual figures? You know, there's this very one-to-one -one relationship with the model. Whereas I think with the mini figures on a, on a planar space, 
you know, there's there's a much less specific relationship with the model. How did how did he approach those those two different things? So Giacometti was very interested in the urban experience, uh, you know, how we as humans encounter one another in in out in the world, in the city and space. And in some ways, his solitary figures and his group of figures are related in the sense that the groups of figures never meet. You know, even when you have works like City Square, where you have a group of figures on this slab that are, you know, moving through the space, they're on their own path. They're not, they're not with one another. They're not encountering one another necessarily. There's a sense of community and yet a solitary nature that's being kind of explored in those works. So that there's something almost lonely about those group works in the same way that you might counter his solitary figure, like his pointing man or, you know, one of his elongated women. So, so there is, for me, there, there is something interesting. And for me, those works, the, the kind of group works are where he's kind of gathered up a series of immobile standing women together, almost like trees in a forest on a slab. Um, And he calls them things like the forest and the glade. For me, those are the works that that do kind of speak to our 21st century experience. You know, it's interesting. We are the most connected as we have ever been technologically, you know, in so many ways. And yet uh, you can kind of sympathize with Giacometti's feelings that one can feel alone in a crowd, that one can kind of question one's place in the world despite this, you know, connectivity. I don't, I don't know. It's, you know, those are the things I kind of grapple with thinking again about historical material and how it not only does his work relate to, you know, where does his production take him and, and where do we with 21st century hats on, how do we kind of interpret that material? You know, I I probably should have brought this next question up before I brought up the group sculptures or the sculptures of groups. But we were talking a moment ago about that one-to-one experience of Giacometti and model that we get in in so many of the paintings and so many of the sculptures of individual figures. We, we have seen for decades art historians go through Picasso and his models, often in, in problematic ways, of course. And to a lesser extent, we've seen art historians go through Matisse and his models. And of course, Matisse had very different relationships with his models than Picasso did with his. Uh, I mean, Matisse is all, you know, of course, often using his family, which is a baseline difference. I don't know of a lot of work that's been done on Giacometti and his models. Is there something for us to learn there? It's an interesting question. I mean, Giacometti's um, most prevalent models were his his brother, Diego, his younger brother, and his wife, Annette. And the two of them, so Annette, who he married in the late 1940s, the two of them would sit for him, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of time, such that it's, you know, nearly muscle memory. So even when you see a work that's bust of a man, head of a man, um, whether it's a painting or drawing or sculpture, it's most likely Diego or there's something of Diego's features there. And then apart from those two, yes, it was his friends, his family. I mean, I don't think you could pass by his studio and not end up sitting for Giacometti. He uh, and sitting for him over a series of days or weeks. He, you know, the the studio in Paris, as as small and untidy as it was, was something of a destination for you know writers, philosophers, 
you know, the door was open in a way. So it would be interesting to kind of mine, you know, more categorically who those, who the people were, though I will say uh, my co-curator, Ketrin Graney, has a new biography out about Giacometti that I think really endeavors to shine a new light on his story, on his relationship with his wife and others, because it, it really were these kind of close, familiar relationships that were critical, not only to literally the production of his work, so Diego as a studio assistant, but also, you know, Diego as the model and that as a model. A couple other people who, who sat for Giacometti in that kind of late 30s period when he was transitioning from, say, that sculpture we talked about earlier, the cube, into into the heads and then to the torsos and figures. Uh, Isabel Rosthorn uh, sat for him. And, and we've talked a good bit about space and planar relationships in the sculptures. And, and we've mentioned Giacometti's brother, Diego. Another brother, Bruno, was, I think, an architect, right? So, you know, there, there may have been, you know, Giacometti would have had access to thinking about, about space from somebody who did it every day, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Finally, you know, it's pretty unusual to have exhibitions of two of the titans of 20th century European sculpture up in, in one city at one time. Brancusi's at MoMA, Giacometti's at the Goog. Brancusi, of course, is half a generation ahead of before Giacometti, of course. Is there anything in in address or contrast or comparison between the two of them that that you think is interesting or that you found yourself thinking about as 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 we kind of approach that moment when both are up at the same time well so brancusi was one of the you know foremost artists that giacometti whose whose work giacometti encountered when he arrives in paris in the 1920s in his 20s and uh you know he was of an older generation but his work was you know highly influential and you you see it in early works like spoon woman with these you know very yeah. smooth surfaces and these stylized forms very different from giacometti's post-war work where the very you know process of of making whether it's the sculpture or even the way he creates lines in his paintings and drawings it's relentless it's restless and relentless it's very, very different from what he's doing early on. So Brancusi was very much an influence, his work. The Guggenheim actually also has um, has had for some months works from our collection by Brancusi in yeah. our modern gallery. So it's been amazing for me to see how visitors do connect those dots. You know, they step into that gallery, see our Brancusis, and then kind of re-encounter Giacometti in a different way. And just an institutional note, the, the Guggenheim as an institution, we really didn't start collecting sculpture until the 1950s. It was really under our second director, James Johnson Sweeney, that we expanded you know, our mission to kind of include more sculpture. And Brancusi and Giacometti were the among the first two artists to come into the collection. So it's really it's really a nod to Sweeney that we have both artists, you know, we're able to represent them with depth. And and kind of that Sweeney himself saw that connection between them as kind of these leaders of modernism, if you will, in his own time. Megan Fontanella, thanks so much. Thank you. Combo Chimbita delivers a delicious mix of cumbia, salsa, reggae, 1970s Funana from Cape Verde, and compa from Haiti. 
Hear this New York-based band on Saturday, August 25th at 6 p.m. as part of Off the 405, a free summer concert series bringing today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Precarity, a new three-channel video installation created by John Acomfra, the London-based artist and filmmaker. Precarity explores the city of New Orleans through the remarkable life and times of Charles Buddy Bolden, the first person known to have explored the sonic tonalities of the music we now call jazz. Beginning in 1900, Buddy Bolden was the most popular musician in New Orleans, celebrated for his raucously loud coronet and down-and-dirty style. King Bolden reigned until 1907, when he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana with schizophrenia. Precarity presents a sonographic and visual history of Bolden and his legend, the emergence of jazz, and the incomparable city of New Orleans. Precarity is part of the Nasher Museum's permanent collection. It's on view through September 2nd at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Paulina Paboha, who's organized the Museum of Modern Art exhibition Constantine Brancusi Sculpture. It looks back at the introduction of Brancusi's work to the United States at New York's 1913 Armory Show. The Museum of Modern Art exhibition includes 11 sculptures, as well as drawings, photographs, films, and some pretty cool archival material. It's on view through February 18th, 2019. Paulina Paboha, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. The first showing of Constantine Brancusi's work in the United States was at the 1913 Armory Show. So pretty early in the then 37-year-old Brancusi's career, the New York American newspaper's headline was famously, Is She a Lady or an Egg?, which is both funny and, and kind of spot on. What makes Brancusi's introduction to the United States an interesting or useful jumping-off point for, for an examination for a show? Well, I think that Brancusi's showing at the Armory exhibition, his sculpture there looked like nothing else that audiences had seen. And it caused quite, I mean, it caused quite a bit of fanfare in the press, both positive and negative. I feel like the negative is what you hear about most. But in fact, there were a lot of publications that wrote really admirably about his contributions. And being that this is a show at MoMA of the works in MoMA's collection, I thought it was an interesting jumping off point because it's so close to home. And of course, Americans were Brancusi's earliest champions. His greatest patron was John Quinn, who bought dozens of sculpture very early on. And the works that are in our collection started entering the collection quite early, again, as a way of, I think, in a, in a way that speaks to the interest of his sculpture to American collectors. Of course, it should be noted that the most infamous responses to European modernism in the Armory show didn't come with the New York presentation. It came with the Chicago presentation. That's when you have artists being burned in effigy, the the infamous and almost incomprehensible Henry hair mattress signs. I mean, you know, I don't know how you get from Matisse to hair mattress, but whatever. So what Brancusi or, or Brancusis were, were in the Armory show? I guess there are a couple we don't know for sure, but there are a couple we do we do know. There were five sculptures in the 
Armory show, and they are, if I'm remembering correctly, Mademoiselle Pogany, which is a sculptor that is in our collection. It was not the sculptor in our collection. It was an earlier marble version. And then there was a sculptor, The Kiss, Sleeping Muse, another sculptor called A Muse, and Torso. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that all of the all of the works besides Pogany were plaster versions of the sculpture because the organizers of the Armory Show could not afford to insure the marbles. So there's a postcard in your exhibition that shows this. What I, I'd never seen this postcard before. It's, it's very cool. What does it show and why was it made? I think that it was, as far as I know, it was a promotional postcard. You can go to the Armory Show and buy these postcards. There was a postcard of Mademoiselle Pogany, the work in the exhibition, just a single straightforward image of her. And then I think the postcard that you're referring to is an overhead shot of the installation in New York, where you see Pogany in the, you know, it's it's almost like you're seeing a grid of sculptures and you see Pogany in the kind of corner closest to the photographer's lens. She's still quite small, but you can make her out. So in addition to the sculptures, and we'll get back to the sculptures in a moment, there are a number of Brancusi photographs in the show. The Brancusi-made photographs has been well-known for a long time. There have been English-language publications devoted to them. Um, In 2014, Bruce Silverstein Gallery in Chelsea devoted an exhibition to 32 of them. Why did you choose to include them? I wanted to look at Brancusi's production of not only his sculptures, but also of his photographs, his drawings, and his film. I think it's an interesting way of understanding how he saw his sculptures, or maybe what an investigation of what he wanted to see in his sculptures. And I think that the photographs, the ones that we selected, offer a really broad range of the way that he engaged with his sculpture through the medium of photography. By that, I mean that in, in some cases, they're very clearly images that he has set up in his studio. One work, and we call it the head of a sleeping child and the newborn, literally pairs these two sculptures separated by at least a decade, if not more, next to each other. It's a very kind of clear, it seems to me very clear that this was something that that Brancusi arranged in his studio for the purpose of the photograph. Other images are images of kind of straightforward images they or they seem to me of objects that you would see in his studio as he happened upon them a lot of them are much more abstract where you see sculpture in shadow with light reflecting off of it light that is kind of you know creating a such a bright highlight that it's almost obscuring part of the image not and almost I think it's, it really it, is <laughs> it really is exactly and i think that all of these all of these different modes of his kind of engagement with photography tell you a lot about what he was hoping to see or or what he was maybe looking for in his sculpture. And by that, I mean, really the kind of materiality of the work. There's a beautiful photograph of a early bird sculpture called Golden Bird, where you have this in the center of the chest of the sculpture, this, this bright gleaming light. And you get the very clearly the the his his desire for the kind of high reflectivity of the surfaces. In other cases, you have where you have a group of sculptures. I think what's interesting there is seeing the relational or the different relationships between these objects pictured, the way the different heights, the different the variance in size, and how they relate to one another. How he's composed the picture, even. 
Exactly. Exactly. And, I, and, and to me, it's, I think that it, or there's a totally gorgeous photograph of the endless column. And I believe it's, yeah, it's the endless column in Tiruju, Romania, the colossal sculpture that he, that was erected in 1937, where literally the column is, is black. It's almost a black silhouette. Of course, the photo is black and white and the column disappears into this cloudy sky. So you really do, you know, we, we talk about the endless column and the fact that it contains the potential of infinity. And here you have that visually articulated through a photograph. That last photograph you mentioned was made contemporary with the installation of of the sculpture, too. I wanted to to dial in on the first photograph you mentioned, the photograph of the 1923-ish Brancusi photograph of Head of a Sleeping Child and the Newborn 2. It almost seems like a progression of influence. So the the form on the left sure reminds me of, of Medardo Rosso. Um, and the form on the right is the more kind of streamlined, pared down, modernist object we typically associate with Brancusi. Do you think he was doing that? Do you think that there's a, you know, do, 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 do you think he's showing narrative there? To me, narrative is in that picture, whether that was his intention or not. And in fact, that photo starts is the first photograph in the exhibition because I feel like it encapsulates the arc of his career, like before and after. You know that that this is what Scott the with the head of the head of the sleeping child, which is a naturalistic, still directly carved image or object. That's what sculpture looked like before Brancusi, even though that is a work by Brancusi, but before Bran before Brancusi became Brancusi, so to speak, and then where he left sculpture with the head of the newborn. One of the interesting things about that for me is that, of course, it's well known that Brancusi worked for Rodin for a time. There's a great quote that I'm going to butcher where he says something like, you know, roots don't grow under the shade of a tree or something in, in, in regard to his leaving Rodin's studio. But I think in part because of Sharon Hecker's great Medardo Rosso exhibition recently at the Pulitzer and her two recent books on the artist that we have uh, our clearest understanding, Americans anyway, have the clearest understanding we've ever had of Rosso and where he fits into the story of modernist sculpture and that picture seems to point to it. Are there other places in Brancusi's sculpture where you see him, you know, either departing from Rodin or picking up from Rosso? It's a great question. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's very, you know, the sculptures from 1904, 1905, 1906, before he really developed his his own idiom, you see the influence of of Rodin, of Rosso, but also I think of Western sculpture writ large, so to speak, you know, that there is at heart still a fidelity to realistic representation. And I think with Brancusi, he rather swiftly, once he gets going, I think departed, departed from that. There is a photograph in the show in which uh, Brancusi is making the picture and there are sculptures and a human figure that appear to be superimposed upon each other. It's kind of a, a layering. I think we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. That'll do a lot better than, than I'm doing <laughs> here. This is a really different picture than the others in the show. What is, what is he doing or suggesting here? Do you think? Well, it's, it's a, I think it's a, 
I was just talking about this photograph with somebody in the galleries, and it looks to me like at least a triple exposure where you see a, a self his self-portrait over top of a tree trunk that is sprouted leaves. So a trunk that was in his studio, but but still had life in it. And then you see the fish and then various versions of the endless column all kind of layered in onto one another. And I think first and foremost, I mean, at this time, Brancusi's very good friends with Man Ray. He's learning a lot or a lot of his knowledge of photography comes from Man Ray. And I think that, I mean, I think that there's a level of formal experimentation. And then of course there is this, you know, kind of elision of self with the objects that he's made, you know, so in some ways, you know, perhaps an identification, very kind of literal identification with the objects of his production. One of the most famous stories of how Brancusi evolves into becoming the artist we know now is he he makes the plinth geometric and makes the plinth part of his sculptures. The photograph of Golden Bird that you were talking about earlier, the one where the sun seems to bounce off of the surface of the sculpture and kind of blind the viewer of the photograph, he doesn't show the whole sculpture. You know, he cuts it off. For you, does seeing pictures like this change or how you think of his idea of including the plinth as part of the sculpture or, or evolve it in any direction or maybe help you understand it better or differently? I, would, I wouldn't say that because he cropped the, you know, framed the image to exclude the majority of the pedestal meant that he was uninterested in pedestals. I think that there's, you know, this is one photograph of many that he took, a large part of which include pedestals. So I guess, I guess, you know, personally, I wouldn't read too much about too much into the whether, you know, how much of the of the pedestal is in the frame versus how much of the pedestal is out of the frame. I do think that that there is on the one hand, I mean, his relationship between sculpture and pedestal is an interesting one in that, you know, famously, we know that he made his own pedestals and that there is this loose experimentation that took place in his studio where he would pair different sculptures on different pedestals. Some sculptures were made with with specific or some pedestals were made specifically for certain sculptures, not always. So there is a kind of looseness, looseness, in, in my opinion, in his conceptual conceptualizing the the that relationship between sculpture and pedestal and i you know if i had to return to this photograph i feel like you know the whether the pedestal is in or out of the frame maybe speaks precisely to that looseness there is one other object that kind of puts us in in Brancusi's studio that's in the show that's not a photograph and that is a, a gouache and pencil on board that's been in MoMA's collection for for 40 years and that I've never seen before. <laughs> what is it and why why was it interesting enough to include? It is a, like you said, described, a gouache and pencil on board drawing. We call it a drawing because it's on board and it, it's in the collection in the drawings and prints 
department. It's been on view. It was on view, I think, as recently as probably about a year ago. And it shows an arrangement of his of objects in his studio, both sculptures and then things like, you know, very clearly in the middle ground of the image, you see a bench that he had fashioned with a head lying on it and a head lying below it. And MoMA, in MoMA's collection, we have two drawings by Brancusi. And I wanted to make sure to include both of them because I am interested in how, again, in how for some artists, what they do for many sculptors, what they do in drawing sometimes relates, sometimes it's preparatory, sometimes it happens after the fact, sometimes it has nothing to do with their sculptural enterprise or very little to do with their sculptural enterprise. And I think here it was interesting because with Brancusi, it is so clearly uh, tied to his sculptural production. And here in the case of this image, he's you know, in some ways, like like the photographic mise-en-scenes of the studio, you're seeing this interest. I mean, it, what I see is an interest in objects as they relate to one another and as they occupy space. And of course, it's interesting to think about a sculptor who's, by, by virtue of being a sculptor, you're forced to think in three dimensions to then translate that three-dimensional space into a flat, flattened two-dimensional image. So museums like MoMA that have a bunch of Brancusis often install them on kind of a little bit of raised floor, seven of them together, yada, yada, yada. But at least I don't think of Brancusi as installing his work as, or making work as Giacometti did, wherein forms have a relationship to each other. With Brancusis, they're discrete individual things. And in this drawing, he really is playing off his forms and shapes against each other within space and in such a conscious way that he's doing it with 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 color and darkness versus light, which is not how I normally think of him. Is there, I mean, isn't that unusual? I guess, I mean, I, I do think, I guess I would disagree that I do think that, that while the sculptors are discrete objects, I think that there are inherent relationships between them. And I think to kind of think more about the sculpture and then to return to the drawing in a moment. But with his sculptures, I think, for instance, the kind of different heights at which he positioned things is you know, fairly relative. Like he wanted the birds to soar high above your head. Portraits were almost always shown at eye level to the viewer. And then heads, whether they be heads of children or heads of sleeping women, were shown tended to be shown low to the ground and this is the definitely the kind of experience that you have if you visit his recreation of his studio in Paris where you have this the these shifts in height and so you know that to me points to a kind of re inherent relational interest in the work he could have shown them all at the same height for instance you know that that he's thinking about these things in addition to being discrete objects also in this kind of network or of of relationships with one another and so here in this in this photograph i mean i i feel like you're seeing that played out very much you know you see the one head at the base of the feet of that central sculptor which i think is is an image of a sculptor called portrait of the of a little french girl and i might not be getting that title exactly right but you see it and then you see it kind of in front of the bench, but positioned on the floor. On the left-hand side, you have Mademoiselle Pogany, the bronze version, that gold outline, you know, kind of looking into the room and again, positioned kind of higher. Little French girl, of course, would be lower. And so you do have these, you know, kind of undulating heights that that are captured at in, in this image, just as they, you know, if we are to assume that the that there's a kind of very strong 
fidelity to the to Brancusi's actual studio, but when you visit the recreation in Paris, you see very much this this sort of arrangement. That's interesting because I hadn't realized or known that. I mean, I'd always thought of the way we saw Brancusi's as being rooted in in contemporary today's display modes rather than in 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 being true to the way he did it. So that's 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 really cool. Finally, this is a, a, a great and rare moment in New York when two of 20th century Europe's greatest sculptors, Brancusi and Giacometti, Brancusi, of course, preceding Giacometti by, you know, half, half, half-ish a generation, maybe a little more. And, and so these two shows are, are up together, and, and that's pretty cool. As you've thought about them, as you've seen the Guggenheim show and installed yours, have you thought of or found moments of similarity or difference or or points of relationship that have have stuck in your mind? I think the very early Giacometti works from the late 20s, 28, 29, are very, I think, resonate with a kind of Brancusi's sculptural vocabulary. I think it's like a spoon woman is an is a work that comes to mind where you have these very stylized um, images that are near abstractions, but you know definitely not rooted in any type of realism. And it's really that period of the I think late twenties that that you have I feel like the, the closeness between between the two. And then of course after during and after the war years, uh, Giacomini goes in a completely different direction. The one that that jumped out to me is Giacometti's sculpture from about 31 or 32. It's unhelpfully titled Untitled, (laughs) but it's an image. I mean, it's probably the most, it's about as obscene as an abstract sculpture can get. It has two breast-like forms on it and three holes in relief. And it's a square on top of a circle on top of uh, another square form. And it struck me that that sculpture seems to almost directly quote Brancusi's way of making the plinth part of the sculpture. Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. I hadn't it didn't hit me when I was looking at it that the the idea of the the pedestal being part of the work. But now that you mentioned it, I think that that makes complete sense. Of course, the scale of it is significantly smaller than most of Brancusi's sculptures, so that. You know, would you show that on the floor? Probably not. If I'm remembering it, they had it on a, in a vitrine. Yeah, it's about 12 inches tall. Right, exactly. So that, so so yes and no in a way that that if it you know kind of out living outside of the in, institutional space, it it would be a work that probably would require, you know, it would be placed on something. And you mentioned Spoon Woman, which is also kind of an oval form on top of two other things. I mean, I you know I I, I think that one could find visual visual references to to Brancusi in, in that early Giacometti, like you said. Yeah, like really specific places. Right, exactly, exactly. And I, and of course, I mean, Giacometti was very much aware of Brancusi, so it's not, it's, it's not surprising. Pauline Paboha, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.